0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Well, welcome back. Thank you very much for tuning in again. Uh, We've all had a two-week break from each other. I hope you had a good time, good rest from all your exertions that you enact while listening to the podcast. Uh, And thank you, those of you who've continued to email uh anyway i had a good time i'm still away actually i'm still as i'm recording in the great northeast of england in county durham uh where we've been doing some beautiful walking and i've been up to the beyond borders festival uh which i'm going to be referring to because um i interviewed jonathan powell up there uh tony blair's chief of staff throughout his time in number 10 uh partly about afghanistan so i'll tell you about that in a moment or two so as ever We've got so much to cram in. This is what we're going to do if it's okay with you. I'm going to reflect briefly on Afghanistan. I say briefly because there are so many layers to this and I suspect we'll all be reflecting on these different angles for weeks and months to come because it's a story that's not going to go away. So I'm going to reflect briefly on one perspective uh, and save save the many others depressingly for um, uh, weeks to come. Then this is part two of The Prime Ministers We Never Had. The book is coming out, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, this Thursday. So this is the final part of my reflections on the podcast on The Prime Minister's Uh, We never had, uh, yeah, this Thursday, 11 Prime Ministers. We never had 10 chapters, two in one chapter. A bit about that. And then um, your fantastic emails. They carried on coming in some really original. They're all original and brilliant. Uh, But uh, the two week break we've all been having from each other. Uh, has produced some inspiring emails, and we'll look at some of them. I'm sorry if your one isn't gonna be read out this time. It will be on another time. Uh, they flowed in in their masses uh, over August. So yeah, that's what's coming up. Before that, now don't get running yet. Don't do a 10K or a 5K. Don't start your bread making yet, or rowing, or whatever you do whilst listening to the podcast. Uh, get a pen and paper out or something. Um, because, um, yeah, I've got two two shows coming up very, very shortly. Uh, for those of you uh, near Greenwich or that part of London or that part of England, live at the Greenwich Theatre, Rock and Roll Politics, the start of the new political year on Sunday, September the 12th. And then live at King's Place, uh, back at the concert hall, on Monday the September the 13th, say start of a new political year, can the stakes have been higher uh, as we approach those live shows with uh, so much internal doubt whirling around both Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer simultaneously? Can one or both of them address them? It's very unusual when a prime minister and leader of the opposition, for different reasons, both feel under pressure simultaneously. Usually one flourishes if the other is under pressure. Uh, But both, for different reasons, uh, it's a big autumn for them. And um, yeah, that and much more at those uh, rock and roll politics shows. Oh yeah, the King's Place one is being streamed live as well uh so if you can't get to the show at king's place you can uh, get the live stream so those now also i'm always getting emails and sometimes i read them out saying "Oh, will see if you're going to be in the northeast yeah uh some way off but i'm going up to uh the Great Witham Theatre in Barna Castle, very near Specsavers, to get my eyesight tested, and then go and do a show there on Saturday, November the sixth. And I know I've had emails from people in the northeast, a long way from uh, Barna Castle, but I, I know people are going to make a weekend of it uh, and uh, come down to Barna Castle or up to Barna Castle. Uh, so join us because uh, that will be fun, and those tickets are on sale. Uh so those are coming up and of course related to the book I'm going to be doing loads of book festivals so if you've got a book festival near you do check because I'll be doing some of those. Yeah it's going to be well for all of us it's going to be a busy political autumn. I think it's going to be an important political autumn in so many different ways. But you know what we always say this at the start of a new political year. Oh yeah this is going to be so important. Well it is always. Politics is continuously important. Anyway Afghanistan All I want to reflect on today really is, it's a bit parochial, but it's the kind of context in the UK because I remember so vividly the build-up to the invasion of Afghanistan in the autumn of 2001. Uh, We had the September 11th uh, attacks in uh, Washington and New York, of course New York above all else, the attempted the suspected or feared attacks in Washington as well. And the reaction fairly quickly uh, was the invasion of Afghanistan. Now as uh, Jonathan Powell pointed out to me when I asked him about the speed of it, driven of course by America, Britain supporting uh, as it always tends to do. Uh, And he did rightly point out it wasn't that speedy. There was an attempt, partly successful, to build up an international coalition of support for the removal of Taliban in Afghanistan. So I should put that in. But there was an almost unquestioning consensus uh, in the UK that this was, to use a phrase deployed often at that time, the right thing to do. I'm really suspicious of that phrase, the right thing to do, because it is without value. It is a personal judgment. What is the right thing to do? It implies there is only one course available and that the other course is the wrong thing to do. Well, no one supports the wrong thing to do. Imagine going to the election. I propose the wrong thing to do. Um, Obviously, that wouldn't get anyone anywhere, but... Looking back at the newspapers at the time, virtually every single one backed uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. And uh, even The Independent, and I wrote columns for The Independent, uh, The Independent became well known for opposing the war in Iraq, but it, it, it backed Afghanistan. Very few at the time were saying, well, hold on a second, is this the right thing to do what are the clear war aims i remember did any of you do history at a level it was one of the great essays uh, questions was you know what were the war aims of those who the countries who began the first world war and were they met or what were the war aims particularly of great britain when it went into the first world war by the way, you could do a whole podcast on that. The war aims weren't that clear, and whether they were met or not um, were far from clear either. Maybe I should do that next week. The war aims of Great Britain at the start of World War I. No, don't worry, I'm not going to. But even now, there is a sort of blurred view about what the war aims were. Uh, Joe Biden says they were very limited uh, the removal of the Taliban and the capacity of al-Qaeda to uh, plan and plot terrorist attacks from Afghanistan. By the way the second one close to meaningless because al-Qaeda and its other manifestations just moved to other places so that was a sort of silly war aim if I can put it like that. Now, uh, Jonathan Powell reminds me, um, or did at the Beyond Borders Festival when I interviewed him on uh, Sunday, um, that that was not the whole or limited war aim. Um, It was more ambitious than that. But even those with greater ambitions, had they been told that... Uh, in one form or another there would be this allied presence in Afghanistan in 2021 and an American unilateral decision to leave would give the Taliban total control within days they would have all had to lie down in a darkened room but when the aims aren't clear at the beginning and the scale of the task is neither clear nor candidly expressed there is going to be trouble ahead and although Biden has acted recklessly uh, in his unilateral move um, there is some potency to part of his argument. Uh, If he's not going to do it which of the succeeding presidents will do it and why will it be different then compared to now when after all this time the Taliban took control with such ease. So next time perhaps when uh, there is this consensus uh, forming very speedily there should be space for scepticism. Uh, over anything. I'm really suspicious when there is this coming together in uh, much of the media and the political world. Uh, There was over austerity for a long time, uh, huge backing in the media for George Osborne's programme of austerity. And then recently, the FT as a newspaper rather nobly admitted, we got it wrong and we should have been much more sceptical of that economic programme. It was more of a political programme, frankly, but it was an ideological one as well. Um, uh, but they were part of the consensus. And these consensuses, is that is there a plural to consensus? Consensuses? Consensus I? Anyway, whatever, are really dangerous because there is no space for contemplation of working out what, I'm going to use that famous word, you know, I used so much before we all had our little break together. Well, not together, but you know what I mean. Uh, consequences. What are the consequences going to be? And if they're not clear, there is argument for pause, especially in terms of Afghanistan, where, apart from perhaps domestic opinion in America, there was no cause for immediate action. Um, and there was an alternative route of building up of international coalition to develop security and intelligence less glamorous than the drama of an invasion where if you remember or don't remember George Bush gave a televised broadcast to the American nation as America went to war and virtually minutes afterwards Tony Blair gave one to the British public as Britain joined in with a certain inevitability and it was really interesting Jonathan Powell was so nuanced and insightful in the uh, his responses to in the interview I did with him um, and he says now in retrospect uh, they should have engaged with the Taliban at the time uh, in the aftermath of September the 11th. Um, he, of course, uh, has learned many lessons from the peace process in Northern Ireland, in which he was a central part, um, and has worked in Afghanistan continuously since he left office in Downing Street in uh, 2007. Um, and he now sees the, the, the case for engaging with the Taliban at the time, rather than uh, this inpatient invasion without a clarity of what happens next, once the Taliban is removed. I mean, they remove Saddam in Iraq, but what happens next? And one final thing on this, bit of it. Um, It was the move to Iraq. I interviewed Claire Short uh, when she was International Development Secretary in September 2002. the the year following the invasion in Afghanistan and she'd just come back from Afghanistan and she told me uh, that she was extremely concerned that on the outskirts of Kabul uh, the Taliban were already regrouping and their capacity to do so arose because troops were being moved from Afghanistan to prepare for the invasion of Iraq. So even at that point when the build-up to the war in Iraq, a totally irrelevant and irrational follow-up to Afghanistan, uh, actually gave the Taliban space to regroup very quickly after that speedy defeat in the autumn of 2001. And again, there was the UK backing the US as it moved towards Iraq, irrespective of, I'm going to use that word one more time, the consequences on Afghanistan so beware consensus in the UK consensus amongst columnists consensus amongst the newspapers the BBC treading carefully not to damage the consensus because maybe that will be seen as being partial or partisan or whatever Labour and the Tories broadly agreeing it usually means there's trouble ahead Anyway, much more on Afghanistan. There are in your questions, actually. Um, so there will be, yeah, we're, it's it's going to be running, I'm afraid, for some time to come. But that's one reflection. Reflection number two, if that's okay with you. Yeah, part two of the prime ministers we never had. Now, for uh, those who missed the last episode, and indeed the one before that, a bit of uh, context, uh, the main context being the books out on Thursday. Uh, You can get it in all good bookshops and online and all the places you know about. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, before part one, there was a big thing about what Rishi Sunak was up to uh, in terms of his prime ministerial ambitions and stirring it with Johnson. The Sunday Times had got hold of a leaked letter from Sunak warning Johnson uh, about various things and Johnson was apoplectic that this was leaked and, you know, he hadn't even read the letter. Uh, and so I looked then at how rare it is for a chancellor to become prime minister. There are more in recent times who became prime ministers we never had. Uh, think about it. Uh, and they were all seen as potential prime ministers. Uh, Ken Clark, Dennis Healy, Rab Butler. All very successful chancellors, all seen as likely prime ministers. They never made it. John Major did, but he was only in the Treasury for 10 seconds. Hadn't had to take tricky decisions. And uh, who else? Well, of course, famously, Gordon Brown made it. And it was a triumph of will and almost deranged focus to get there, as we all know but quite often they don't. And we went through the reasons for that, and they're expanded on in the book. Uh, Last time, before we had our little break, I told you about the very strict criteria for those who get the dubious honour of making the cut in the book, these 11 prime ministers we never had. Uh, It's not about who are the best prime ministers we never had, because we all have opinions about that. We could all churn out endless books on that um but that would be self-indulgent it's about those who were widely seen as being uh the likely next prime minister and had the feasible opportunity to do so uh, i.e were leader of the opposition a fairly fundamental qualification uh if you're not leader of the opposition quite hard to find a route to being prime minister unless you're a senior cabinet minister in a governing party when a vacancy arises. Um, And of course, you've got to stand in leadership contests and things like that, or else it's not going to happen. So that starts to exclude quite a lot of people. Now, some people also say, what about John Smith? Uh, What about Hugh Gateskill?" And I addressed that issue in the introduction. This book is an investigation as to why those who meet the criteria failed to seize the crown. What went wrong? Are there common lessons? Um, and so on. And we know the answer, sadly, to John Smith. Uh, he died. So there is no need for an investigation. By the way, if he lived, I'm pretty... No, I'm not pretty, I'm sure... He would have won the 1997 election and been an impressive prime minister. One with confidence of government because he had been there before in the late 1970s as a cabinet minister. And anyway, had a natural self-confidence. Some of the insecurities that uh, partly define the new Labour era wouldn't have been there. Anyway, doesn't matter uh, in the sense that we know that. Um, and it's a sad reason, along with Hugh Gateskill, I argue, Ian Macleod is another one. We know the answer. Uh, he could have been uh, a prime minister, but he sadly died very soon after the 1970 election. So who does make it? Um, I'm just going to quickly go through them. Um, there are many kind of lessons as to why none of these made it, um, but here they are, and you can Discover for yourselves the Shakespearean art, the soaring hopes, the dashed ambition. In a way, the phrase was coined uh, whenever Rab Butler was referred to. Ah, yes, Rab Butler, the prime minister we never had. Uh, He had three opportunities uh, to become prime minister, and certainly on one of them, Rab Butler, who was quite self-effacing in some respects, thought he was going to do it and had prepared Uh, a speech to the nation, an address to the nation, uh, on the assumption he was going to become Prime Minister after the Suez crisis. Suez crisis, incidentally, with many echoes today about Britain and America and its uh, subservience in relation to Afghanistan. Uh, He never did, and um, arguably he would have been more effective, certainly, than the person who got it the third time he might have got it, Alec Douglas Home. Hume? Home? Um, uh, after the fall of Harold Macmillan through illness. Uh, I think Harold Wilson would have struggled more against Butler than he did against Douglas Home. Douglas Hume, I've forgotten how you pronounce his surname. Anyway, um, he didn't. And partly he didn't because he had been such a substantial figure for so long. It's quite dangerous to want to be Prime Minister if you've already been substantial. Because quite often you become so controversial not least within your own party that you have enemies determined to stop you. Uh, Roy Jenkins comes next uh, similar to Rab Butler in many ways Um, he was a reforming uh, home secretary as Butler was Jenkins more so and then a successful chancellor and it was at that period in the late 60s as uh, jenkins was steering the economy towards stability after a traumatic devaluation that he was seen as a likely next prime minister and harold wilson in 1969 just three years after winning a landslide had to say at one point in a speech because there was so much speculation about jenkins taking over Uh, you may be wondering what's going on i'll tell you what's going on i'm going on and he did He went on for many more years, by the way, until 1976, uh, lost an election, won two more, and a referendum on Europe. And Jenkins never got it then. Uh, He tried again and thought he might again as SDP leader, the only prime minister we never had to try with two different parties. And by the way, the only one to get the name prime minister attached to him. He was uh, somewhat loftily called prime minister designate in the 1983 election, why did he fail when he would have been, I think, objectively a, a, a powerful prime minister? Um, uh, the, well, the question is addressed in this uh, book. Who's now Barbara Castle makes it, She, to be honest, she only just makes it uh, because she didn't stand in a leadership contest. And you're not going to become leader if you don't stand in a leadership contest. Uh, but she was seen by so many as a potential leader or or more in retrospect actually whenever Labour people are asked who is you know who was your favourite Prime Minister they always say well I prefer one we didn't have Barbara Castle Lisa Nandy said it during the leadership contest election so many have said it and um, I compare her with Margaret Thatcher because Castle was much more substantial to use that word again um, than Margaret thatcher but um uh too substantial too controversial uh thatcher three years as education secretary more or less um castled a series of big jobs with uh, contentious programs most famously of course in place of strife the proposed reforms of trade unions and that was one of the reasons why it was impossible for her um interestingly uh, other women who might have made the cut don't because of the um, fact that they either didn't stand or when they stood, uh, they didn't have a chance. Margaret Beckett might well have been a great Prime Minister. I explained this in the introduction. Uh, but she stood in 1994, having been a very effective acting leader. And um, the only question that summer was whether it was going to be Blair or Brown and it was Blair, and he won by a landslide. So she was never in that position. Shirley Williams, similarly, was often seen as this formidable, popular figure, Um, but she never stood in a Labour leadership contest, and she kept on losing her seat. It was one of the ironies about Shirley Williams. Uh, She was both popular, but unlucky. Uh, She was in a marginal seat as a Labour MP, And then as an SDP MP, she won Crosby in a by-election and then lost it. So she was never in a position to be leader. The Tory women, uh, well, they became Prime Minister. Uh, Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May really are the only ones who were in a position to be, and they both managed it. Blimey, I'm only at Barbara Castle, and we're halfway through this, at least halfway through this, podcast in terms of duration or normal duration I'm going to do one more now and I'll do some more uh, another time so who follows oh yeah I think it's uh, Dennis Healy follows Barbara Castle I think now he's he's fascinating because um, again when his moment came and he did stand in quite a few leadership contests well two uh, but his moment appeared to have come in 1980 when Jim Callahan resigned as Labour leader and they were in opposition then uh, Healy had been a popular well popular-ish Chancellor um, you know he was popular when he appeared on a Morecambe and Wise show which he did quite often he was a bit like Johnson in that respect you know popping up he was on a generation game dressed up as a Father Christmas once and things like that you know people liked all of that but he had had a tough tough time as Chancellor in the 70s and uh, was a formidable defence secretary for Labour in the 60s. Tough brief. And then um, the leadership became available. And again, there was this dangerous thing, a media consensus formed overnight that it would be Healy and that it had to be Healy. And there was quite a consensus in the Labour Party that it would be Healy. But it ignored the fact that Britain is not a presidential system, it's a party-based system system and Healy was at odds with his party because of the way or a section of his party because of the way that section perceived his period as chancellor they saw in a way that was indiscriminate and too uh, lacking in context uh, a chancellor who cut uh, with a near relish spending programs and so on. Uh, Healy's rule was much more complicated than that but in the treasury his rule in the treasury Uh, but perception is all and he was not political enough to change that perception of course it was then that Michael Foot became leader in 1980. You have to be when the junction of a leadership contest arrives uh, at one with your party or appear to be at one with your party and Healy simply wasn't that, of course, applies to some of the other prime ministers we never had. Ken Clark uh, being a classic example of a later prime minister we never had. Um, I argue one would probably have changed the course of history. Michael Heseltine, if he had won in 1990, would have had to have taken his party on over Europe. I suspect we would still be in the European Union if he had seized the crown in 1990. Why didn't he? And what about the Labour leaders of the opposition all of whom had chances to seize the crown and win an election and all didn't uh, Neil Kinnock, Ed Miliband and indeed Jeremy Corbyn after the 2017 election when he wiped out Ther- Theresa May's majority. Anyway I've kind of given you a brief guide um oh yeah the 11 pms in 10 chapters the two in one chapter are the Miliband brothers David and Ed uh, two of the most uh, decent people in British politics who ended up in this terrible, terrible uh, warfare Um, but um, that's enough reflection I mean, yeah you can buy it and tell me what you think Um, and I'll be interested to hear so I'll be speaking on this at various book festivals and so on there are many rich themes I think and lessons of leadership which in some ways I think are Uh, deeper than the ones explored when I reflected on modern prime ministers from Wilson to Johnson. Uh, But there are so many brilliant questions from you, although I could go on, I'm not going to. I'm going to turn to the questions, some of which, by the way, relate to all of these things. So let's turn to the questions that have been flying in uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Let's begin with uh, Noah Keat. Uh, The Political Tides writes, Noah, this autumn looks set to remain as turbulent and unstable as ever. I agree, Noah, I think it's going to be an epic autumn. Um, He says, one of the great things about uh, your podcast is the importance of historical context. Context is a big thing. Um, When I was at the BBC, when John Burt was director general, he used to go on a lot about context. Nothing makes sense without context. Contextualise a news story before you report it. As if it has come from nothing and some of the political reporting at the BBC could benefit with that I think. Um, Anyway, Noah says, I'm writing to ask about what sources of history you think are most effective for gaining an accurate interpretation about political events. It seems to me that each have their own strengths and weaknesses. For example, the diaries of a minister present an immense insight into a politician's mind but are clearly affected by partisan bias and also no self interest by contrast the minutes of a civil servant might present a factually accurate interpretation but can't reveal a politician's real internal thoughts so what are the best sources um i love diaries uh if you know the wider context you can really appreciate the diary because you can get the self absorption the partisan nature of it the self interest Um, But it takes you into the mind of a player at the time. I love them. And I think they are a wonderful, though of course unreliable guide. Uh, Newspaper articles are brilliant. We're lucky now we can get past newspaper articles really easily. And they take you back to the immediacy of the period. And you read them with the great privilege of knowing what happened next. The newspaper reader of the day didn't so we see them in a different light and they're fantastic so are some memoirs quote from a lot of memoirs in the prime ministers we never had because they reveal retrospective thinking from key players Um, so you you know it's it's the mix Noah and then you have to make judgments which of course reflect your own views and the period in which you write Um, History is a constant dance between the past and the present. Thank you, Noah Matthew Daly uh, writes that, um, oh yeah, about Kabul. And he, Matthew, sees an echo with Suez um, when our, as in the UK's, hopes for genuine global relevance was dashed by the US. um, And this time a superpower seems to be less globally engaged um yeah I, I think there is um oh yeah and matthew I, matthew's a farmer uh, i think matthew used to be conservative isn't now from my memory regular correspondent part of the big growing rock and roll politics community and he says this farmer in isolation with covid at the moment double vaccinated so thankfully with little more than a bad cold as symptoms my 14 year old son went to a sleepover with friends all seven of them have it i have it because he spent quite a lot of time with me in the tractor as i'm teaching him to drive a tractor wow uh, more government woes to come with the school coming back. Well, thank you for reminding us that, uh, Matthew. Uh, COVID is still going to be a big story this autumn. And you remind us as to why. All seven of them got it at sleepover. And then you got it. Uh, God, on it goes. Uh, thank you very much. Laundry Joe. So cool because he listens to the podcast doing his uh, laundry. Laundry. Um, he cites a recent uh, policy announcement by Labour relating to universal credit and dissects it by saying here's the problem Uh, the policy contains no specifics um, on on which to base an argument Uh, the issue is unlikely to have any salience with swing voters um, and the policy choice plays into the Tory hands of Labour being for the the combination of the unemployed and liberal elite not enough to form a majority Um, and he compares this to Labour in 97 uh, saying get 250,000 young people off benefits and into work by using the windfall levy on privatized utilities specific and costed with the source of funds identified um, and so on as having a greater clarity and salience. Um, Yeah, I suppose they're not at the stage yet of those precise pre-election policies, Laundry Joe. Um, But he asks, what's more important, a party's brand or a party's policies? They are both utterly interconnected. Uh, You cannot have a brand disconnected from values and the policies that arise from them. And the art of politics, especially in opposition but also in government, is to make them all work for you. So the brand is a natural apparition at the end of the process where policy and value have combined effectively. Um, And obviously uh, Labour aren't in that position yet. But incidentally, nor are the Tories uh, in government uh, who are far from clear what their post-Brexit post-pandemic agenda is well they've got words for it but the, but but nothing more uh, as we've discussed many times on the podcast the words are very effective things like take back control leveling up but it has to be fleshed out and made sense of um Phil Rowe says, I'm curious about the influence or otherwise of former leaders, the prime ministers we did have. Yeah, good theme this. In the light of Tony Blair's recent commentary on Afghanistan, Theresa May's on the same, and Brexit. Are they grandees or busted flushes? I recall a soggy heath staring lasers at a Buffon Thatcher. Blair is clearly active but perhaps not in the public consciousness and weirdly when Major speaks I listen up. What's the recent histories of PMs after they've served? Well that's a good question and it it, actually it it, it merits more reflection from all of us and including me uh, because they, they definitely have a platform. It's a platform which is complicated, there's no doubt about that. So certainly in the early days after Tony Blair uh, left left the Commons, they all leave far too quickly these days, not Theresa May to her credit. Um, he had lost huge amounts of authority for reasons we know, but he's acquired a lot over the pandemic uh, and before that uh, Brexit. Similarly, John Major, especially with uh, Brexit, uh, and Theresa May is now really going for Boris Johnson, and when she does, it feels quite significant. Thatcher's hold over the Tory party remained huge, even though it was the Tory party that got rid of her. Um, she, in effect, told them to vote for John Major, William Hague, and Ian Duncan Smith in leadership contests, and they did. Uh, so it varies considerably, um, but they have a platform for as long as they want. What they can't do or pretend to be anymore really are big players in politics there are some like andrew adonis tweeting most days that tony blair should be the next leader of the labor party well that's not going to happen um when you are a former leader that is what your role is and it's a limited one but it is not wholly empty um uh mike writes uh i haven't got mike's uh, surname uh mike you can tell me next time i'd love to hear your thoughts on rory stewart as a prime minister we never had uh he's a contender given he ran against johnson in 2019 for the tory leadership uh contest um and he's been very effective on various issues since he's not a contender mike because by the way mike says sending this looking at the blue sea and sky in guernsey i'm very pleased for you mike it has been uh, grey skies in uh, lots of the UK for about eight months. So uh, I'm, you know, very pleased for you. Anyway, yeah, um, Rory Stewart, I'm afraid, lost that leadership contest by a wide margin. So it doesn't get any anywhere, anywhere near qualifying for a prime minister we never had. But it shows why it's an urgent topic, because why isn't Rory Stewart uh, a it, prime minister now? he would have been brilliant in the pandemic when he was warning that action had to be taken weeks or if not months before Johnson did anything and he's been brilliant on Afghanistan too um and and yet he has been nowhere near it and is even further away now because you know he hasn't got a platform of any sort um so yeah it, it raises all kinds of questions about who we get and why because uh, he's not even in the house of commons He didn't even stand for the London mayoralty in the end, did he? Uh, Okay, Owen Thomas says, I've recently discovered the podcast which I'm really enjoying and ordered your new book. Hurrah! My question is, why do you think Keir Starmer has kept MPs such as Yvette Cooper, Hilary Benn and Dan Jarvis on the back benches? Is it that he fears that they could outshine him or did they not want to join the shadow cabinet due to their roles as select committee chairs? Well I certainly think in the case of some of those Owen uh, they would have only accepted very senior positions in the shadow cabinet and Keir Starmer clearly had his own choices as to who should fill those senior posts and I think he as any new leader tends to wanted to symbolise a kind of moving on to some extent um, because Uh, you know you want to have a new beginnings and they were uh, or two of them Hilary Benn and Yvette Cooper were in the last Labour government etc but it remains the case that um, certainly Yvette Cooper and to some extent Hilary Benn have been more effective as performers and opposition is about performance because you cannot be judged by policy implementation uh, than a lot in the shadow cabinet. The problem is now Uh, Keir Starmer has changed his uh, shadow chancellor once. Rachel Reeves has settled in quite well, I think, um, is what you would give uh, such people now. They would still have to be big roles. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, I I still think uh, it's worth watching these figures. Um, And as the election nears, um, it's less important being on a select committee chair and really being part of the um, campaign to uh, win an election, something Labour rarely does. Um, Now, how about this one from, uh, thank you, Owen, Uh, I hope you enjoy the book. Henry Carruthers uh, has written this, I enjoy listening to your podcast whilst ironing. Uh, We've got a lot of people ironing, Uh, not the most active participants, but, you know, a lot of doing the ironing. And I'm almost through your book on Prime Ministers. Oh, great, thank you. I hope you're not reading that while you're doing the ironing, because, you know, you might burn a shirt, uh, Henry. Um, And he said, I look forward to reading your book on Prime Ministers. We never had. Great. Um, Anyway, he says, I don't know if he's in it, but I thought my primary school diary entry about one candidate might help to stake a claim for the youngest political commentator ever. At the age of seven, I wrote the following. Uh, This is Henry, age seven, in his diary. 18th of June, 1962. Yesterday, I went to Battersea. Uh, Yesterday, as I went to Battersea, I crossed Chelsea Bridge. I went to the fun fair. I went into a big tent there. There were paintings and toys. We saw high fountains. Um, I heard Mr. Gateskill speak because Mr. Macmillan is retiring. He is going to be our next prime minister. What a what a every word of this entry is is fantastic, uh, Henry. And he says the uh, he had of course been to the 1962 Festival of Labour. That apparently is where Gateskill was speaking. Right. He became a Spurs supporter as well. Um, something that I suffer from. Although at the moment we're top of the table, Henry. Uh, three wins out of three anyway uh what a what a interesting moment uh to have captured gateskill um uh in in that uh moment now gateskill isn't in the book not because he wouldn't have been a good prime minister but simply because i said earlier henry we know why he didn't make it i think he would have won in 64 um and uh but of course harold wilson took over and did uh, and uh, we, we know the reason why Gateskill didn't. But fantastic to have that record of uh, your diary. Um, anyway, he says, um, I nor- normally find my burning questions answered during your podcast. And I'm sure I'm not alone in wondering if Boris can survive the Afghanistan crisis. I suspect he can. Uh, foreign Affairs, often adds to the fragility of a prime minister it's very interesting foreign affairs plays virtually no part in the embryonic careers of prime ministers but then quite often shapes their fall but i don't think afghanistan will be enough it 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 has intensified doubts in the tory parliamentary party as ever it doesn't seem to have extended to the wider electorate but those doubts are significant um, but Henry adds, finally, when your recipe book comes out, I have a great one for a double chocolate sourdough loaf. Great. Well, all of us trying to keep fit. A double chocolate sourdough loaf sounds just the thing. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Henry. What? Well, how long have we been going? Uh, OK, yeah. Couple more, couple more questions uh Venetia kane says this is about people in the wrong party she says if there had been electoral reform over the last 50 years there would have been a variety of kind of for want of a better word centrist party you know the social democratic party liberal anyway and uh, and in that context she she argues heath uh would have been part and there, there would have been a coalition of them all of which heath would have been a part of All Thatcher's Wets, the Lib Dems, Blair and Co., the Change UK lot, all the Tories that Johnson Cummings expelled, and a whole lot more who keep or kept their heads down for fear of losing their seats and junior ministerial or opposition spokesperson posts. How different UK politics would have been in the last 50 years if only we had PR? That's a statement, but it could be a question as well. Well, if it's a question, venetia i'm still to be converted to electoral reform we have in this country um with the first past the post system the flaws i fully understand um but in effect the two big uk wide parties are in themselves coalitions and i'm not sure the evocation of what you described above Venetia, the WETs, the Lib Dems, the the Change UK lot, as you call them, and all the other things, Um, whether it would have been quite as neat a dance as you suggest. But as I say, lots of you are writing to me about this and electoral reform. I'm on the verge of being converted, but I'm not not there yet. Um, Anyway, let's do uh, one more, if that's okay k with you um what shall we do i'll i'll read the others out we've got some great ones um uh which i was planning to read out but we've been going for quite some time uh from uh, tom engel from uh sean uh, uh from john bennett um actually i'm going to read you the john bennett one because it just goes back a long way uh simon Locke is still uh baking bread wonders whether lord halifax is a potential prime minister we never had he he kind of makes it simon he doesn't make the the book because there's a limit about how far you can go back at a period when prime ministers emerged if uh, you know as they did then in the tory party um uh but yeah history would have been very different if he had taken over rather than churchill uh, uh rob jackson Uh, Is Corbyn in the wrong party? Wouldn't he be better in the SWP as an example of a politician in the wrong party? Uh, Interesting point. Why are people like Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party rather than one of those? They must be interested in power, although Jeremy Corbyn has never shown much interest in being on the front bench until he accidentally (laughs) became leader. Um, Mark Irving suggests Churchill as a successful defector. We were looking at successful defectors um, Leslie Buchanan from Barcelona where he's enjoying himself as the tourists have all fled to the beach uh, wonders about the influence of special advisors great theme Leslie um, uh, he is a sca- he he was a civil servant and is wary of the expansion of special advisors, I take a different view Leslie, I think these ministers need people who aren't civil servants who are uh, sympathetic with the agenda, whether a Tory agenda, a Labour agenda, or whatever. Uh, So I don't see special advisers as sinister. Stephen Townsley wonders about the uh, epic defections of John Horham, Uh, his MP at the time, uh, representing Gateshead for Labour, 1980s to the SDP, then to the Conservatives. Route, yeah, not taken by too many, Stephen, but that's a good example. Um, uh, William Woodroffe wonders about um, uh, uh, William Hague as a prime minister we never had on the basis that he would have been very good after the Brexit referendum. Yeah, um, it's too late. Once a leader's resigned, you don't become a leader again. And he he resigned, William, as you discuss in your email, uh, after that 2001 slaughter. So, yeah um brad dodd argues that brexit and the pandemic will shape future elections for years to come and in scotland of course the issue of the indie ref too um yeah maybe uh they will do uh, whether overtly or not brad i'm less sure about you see what i mean about these brilliant emails we, we could be going on you could be running marathons those of you who run and listen uh with these emails andy milson what w- wonders about the influence of the uh daily Mail um, and uh, its ongoing impact in spite of the kind of uh, era of social media these are all rich themes I promise you we'll come back to some of them um, because you know they you could do whole podcasts on it Tom Engel uh, had a look at the Harold Wilson interview I told you all to go and watch uh, on on YouTube there are loads of stuff from Thames television. And he was a surprisingly good uh, interviewee. Uh, and, and Tom Engel agrees with that. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, and he says, I think Keir Starmer is wise to identify Wilson, as he, as he did as a leader of to be modelled on some extent uh, at one point. He was a political operator and rare election winner. Yeah, yeah, all those things. And to, I was surprised at what a good interviewee he was. I didn't think he would be. Um, But having looked at these YouTube interviews, he was. Anyway, finally, uh, from uh, John Bennett, a bit more of history for all of us here. Even at my advanced age, uh, I can recall, uh, uh, yeah, uh, quite advanced age, uh, John, uh, uh, President Kennedy and the assassination in November 1963. I was at my first term at college, and we heard the news as we went in for dinner, Bit more history see a bit more context in today's podcast our college our college politics society had invited the then mp for abingdon airy neve who was himself assassinated later in 1979 to talk to us after dinner and once we talked about the terrible news the discussion turned to domestic politics talking about the um, succession to eden in 1957 Neve recounted how Lord Salisbury, who couldn't pronounce his R's, called in each member of the cabinet one at a time and asked, well, is it Howald or Wab? Only two favoured Butler. Uh, And he wonders whether it would have been any different for Rab Butler if the party membership had been involved in those elections rather than just cabinet being consulted and so on. Um... Now uh, it's an interesting vignette and the answer is I'm absolutely sure if the party membership had had a vote in the leadership elections in which Rab Butler was a candidate he still would have lost. Um, And the reasons, as I explain in the book, are about Butler's amazing uh, record as a minister, a reforming party chair, uh, etc. But he alienated too many Tory party members that's what happens if you're a big reformer uh, and then stand for leadership contests or hope to be a leader you've got problems because you've alienated too many of your own people It's, it's a depressing conclusion about leadership that those who become leaders quite often do not have an impressive but contentious past because that's what stops them from being a leader. Oh, yeah. Well, we've come full circle. And say, so I'm sorry if I haven't read out your emails, but do keep them coming. Uh, you know the address, at least I hope you do, because I always forget the damn thing. But I'm going to give it to you. Uh, here is the uh, email address. Um, uh, it's steverick14, Rick 14 at icloud.com. And forgive me for reminding you, once again, the books in the bookshops on Thursday. The Prime Ministers, we never had, 11 of them. I haven't even spoken about some of them today, but they will come up. Um, And yeah, those tickets, rock and roll politics, live at the start of a new political year. King's Place, September the 13th, where it will also be streamed. You can get stream tickets, they're all on the website. And I'll put the website on the uh, podcast blurb. Uh, And the Greenwich Theatre, September the 12th, start of a new political year and then going forward into the autumn when things will feel very different again and quite turbulent as uh noah keaton one to others noted in the emails um the witham at uh, barnard castle great look thank you very much for listening and say more emails next week uh yeah we'll be well into things uh and these are big times for johnson starmer we haven't reflected much on either of them today but we will be doing in the weeks to come and in the live shows thanks so much for listening and well we're all back here we go it's going to be big autumn thank you bye